know, give your neighbor a high five, an exploding fist bump or something to let them know they're welcome here, and you may have a seat. First of all, does any have one of these things called a Bible that you might have brought with you or maybe an electronic device of some sort? If you do, hold it up, shake it a little bit, make the bookstores glad and the devil mad, and let's chop off some devil's heads. Na, 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 A little weak over here. Na, na. Those of you that are doing that might realize that this really is a weapon, right? If you believe that, repeat after me. This Bible has the power to change my life to change my city. I can do what this Bible says I can do. I'll be a history maker and a world shaker. This Bible's a truth detector. It's in deflector. Faith inflator. I'm going to read it now. I'm going to read it later. If you believe that, give Jesus a shout, a hand clap, just to make sure I'm in the right place. All right? All right. Talk to you a message today. The church has left the building. Okay? Now, first of all, uh, if you've been to a concert lately, I haven't been, but I remember back in college, maybe went to Boston or Leonard Skinner or Charlie Daniels or something. At the end of the concert, everybody would start clapping. And then they would maybe hold up their big lighters if they had one. Or now maybe use your cell phone and turn your light on. But what are they wanting? They're wanting an encore, all right? They're wanting to come back and perform again. You know, there was an announcer by the name of El DeVoren who traveled with Elvis Presley. And he's heard on some of his live recordings because at the end of the concerts, at some point, you'd hear him say, Elvis has left the building. And what he meant there was, okay, he's really gone now. Crowd, you can go ahead and go home. He's not coming back for anymore. But I want to use that kind of backdrop that we can talk about the word church and the history of church, okay? Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do you say that I am, the Son of Man am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So first of all, Jesus is asking them, who do you say I am? They come back with, well, word on the street has it that you're maybe uh, Elijah. You know, he has to come back, or your prophet. And he kind of stops them and says, well, who do you say I am? And of course, Peter jumps right up. But with a revelation, he said, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus replies back to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, and I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock or this revelation I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a very powerful prophetic verse about the church. And first of all, its foundation is Christ, and a church has to be based on who He is. And if it is based on who He is, then that means He will build the church, and that if He builds a church... No matter what comes against it, hell itself, it's going to stand. Is that right? Okay, I've been reading a book by Andy Stanley called Deep and Wide. It's a book about creating churches unchurched people love to attend. I mean, that just sounds good to me anyhow as far as reaching the unlost. But every time 
through kind of that book, reading it, and some reading some commentaries, you find out, first of all, the word church is only used in the four Gospels this one time where Jesus said to Peter and Matthew, I'll build my church. Okay? The word church in this passage is from the Greek word ecclesia. Okay? It's pronounced ecclesia because I checked with our local scholar, Nick Birmingham. Uh, I went to the Nictionary, the Nicothorus, and found out that this is the correct way to say it. Now, I have my master's in Google and Siri, but other than that. But let's say that together. Ecclesia. One more time. Ecclesia. All right? Now, it's what you don't know, you maybe heard that before, but it's not a religious term. Okay? It means when citizens gather together, uh, maybe for a civic purpose, or soldiers gather together for a military purpose, but an ecclesia was simply a gathering or assembly called out for a specific purpose. Ecclesia was never meant to be a specific place, but only a specific gathering, okay? Now, that doesn't mean we can't come together in homes and worship or meet at church and worship. I think Andy Stanley puts it this way. The problem happens when we switch from being a movement to a monument. Okay, now here's what happened in church history, all right? And it didn't happen for almost 300 years, but what happened was we went from assembly to assembly hall. As a matter of fact, in A.D. 313, Constantine was soon to be the Roman emperor, and he legalized Christianity. As a matter of fact, he legalized uh, freedom of religion in general. Okay, before this, Christianity had been outlawed, okay, because uh, Christians... First of all, it says that Jesus, not the emperor, was the king, okay? And they weren't going to, you know, bow to some other leader. They didn't think any other, you know, emperor was divine like Jesus was. So, of course, Christians began to be persecuted, okay? They, the government wasn't going to put up with this. And some of the emperors were really bad, like Nero, if you've read about him at all, he would impale Christians with spears and stick them in his garden, light them on fire to light his garden. And even when that subsided a little bit, Christians were still ostracized by their communities. They were charged with random crimes. They were never allowed to have positions of authority. They were uh, stripped of property. And so gathering together uh, was not only difficult, it was dangerous, okay? With the rise, revival of Constantine, things began to change. As Constantine's power grew, so did tolerance for Christianity. And something really big happened. Constantine declared himself a Christian. Man, imagine the shockwaves that went through the Roman Empire. After generations of failed attempts to squash this knockoff Jewish religion led by the Galilean carpenter, now Christianity uh, was fashionable. And here's what happened after Constantine's rise to power. Before that, uh, Christians would get together worship. It'd be rather informal. They might meet in homes or... Maybe it was a tolerant city. They might meet in a building. And even if they did, it was decorated with just a few simple murals. And they had what they called love feasts. That was kind of our equivalent to the church potluck. And after that, they would share scriptures. They'd talk theology. They'd sing songs. They would uh, have communion. But then, after Constantine's conversion, then powerful people brought their former notions of worship with them Okay, those who professed Christianity, but they began influencing Christian communities. So Christian worship went into this religious kind of a ceremony. And so they would use 
Incense, ornate clothing, processionals, choirs, pageantry, worship became formal, and the congregation just became spectators. So with the rise of Constantine, it was not before that, it was not unusual for people to go to the graves of the martyrs that had given their lives and, and had communion there. But when the powerful people got a hold of this, they took it to a whole new level. They would actually build churches on grave sites of martyrs. And if they couldn't build a church there, they would exhume the bones, take them to the church, put them in an altar where they served communion, and they had the art martyrs' bones there. Within a decade, the Ecclesia ceased to be a movement. It was no longer an expanding group of people sharing a unique identity or purpose. It had become a location. And the Romans called these gathering places basilica. That was a Latin word for a public meeting place. Now, in the Gothic or Germanic culture, they started using a word when Christianity started coming to them. They used the word karika, which later became kirch. And that was a term they used for church. It meant house of the Lord or literally translated sacred place. Okay? This was used for any gathering, Christian or pagan. And the Germanic term was the one most often used in the place of ecclesia. And that's where we get the word church. All right? From kirch to church. Now, a majority of your English Bible here is translated word from word from the Greek. But in this case, the word ecclesia was a substitution for the word, and not a very good one at that, all right? Because the German term kirche and the Greek term ecclesia refer to two different ideas. Kirche is a location. Ecclesia is a powerful gathering of people. You can lock the doors on a kirch, but you can't with the ecclesia of Jesus Christ. Could I get an amen for that one? Amen. So here's some unsettling questions we've got to ask ourselves. Are we moving or simply meeting? Now, I feel like we're in a church that's moving. I mean that... Uh, you saw on the slide some things we're doing. Usually every week there's some sort of a mission thing going on. As a matter of fact, I think I don't know if they just got back from uh, digging mission, uh, water wells in Mexico. And, and there's people serving and doing all things all over our community and leading small groups. But you can be in a church that's moving, but you might not be moving. Or you can be in a church that's not moving and doing anything, but you could be in there, you know, moving and trying to do some things for the Lord. Either way, what we got to remember the interesting thing is that the church of man could not contain the ecclesia of Jesus, all right? And that's where I'm saying the church has less the building. In other words, we, the building is not the church. Who's the church? We are the church. So something interesting happened in 1453. The Ottoman Empire conquered the capital of Rome, which was kind of tragic, but this was a blessing in disguise for the true church because now uh, scholars took the... Greek and Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts and fled westward to Europe. And they were welcomed by reformers like a man by the name of John Huff who believed the Bible, not the Pope, should be the church's final authority. Okay? And then during this period, the church officials were the only ones that had Bibles. And they were in the Latin translation called the Vulgate, which was written about a thousand years earlier. And they were either locked up in libraries or chained to the pulpit. They were not accessible to the average person. Now, in 1522, a man by the name of William Tyndale. Does that sound familiar? If you have a Bible, it could have been by Tyndale Publishing. Okay? 1522. He decides, I want to translate this, Greek and Hebrew, into the English version. And so in that process, first of all, a fellow clergyman challenged Tyndale and suggested that people might be better off without the law of God than the law of the Pope. 
And he replied, if God spares my life before many years pass, I will make it possible for a boy behind the plow to know as many scriptures as I do. And it said every time Tyndale came across the word ecclesia in the Greek New Testament, he translated it congregation instead of church. He was trying to reclaim the idea that the church was not a place to go but a movement to join. That's a good amen right there. Now, here's the problem. Making the Bible available for his fellow countrymen made him an outlaw to the government and the civil authorities. And they decided they were going to try to get him arrested and tried for heresy. But he was able to evade him for 10 years until an acquaintance turned him in. And so they took him before the uh, tribunal of the Holy Roman Empire and they called him a heretic, turned him over to the civil authorities. They bound him to a beam, strangled him with a rope, burned him with fire and spread his remains out all over the place. For this. So we could have this. And we kind of take it for granted, don't we? Might be covered with dust on a coffee table somewhere or whatever the case may be. But people gave their lives so we could have this. So we could have this freedom we can find in this world. People gave their lives when, uh, for that flag over there. And it's just a flag, but it's a symbol of the lives that have given and the freedom we have. But man, what more freedom can you have than in Jesus Christ? And we have the freedom in our country to be able to worship the Lord. Amen for all of our veterans and martyrs. Okay. This statement, listen to it. In every age, the church faces the danger of degrading itself from a movement to a place, from a conduit of God's mighty rushing wind to a sacred place where we seek serene spiritual moments from a rescue station to a spiritual country club. You know, a lot of times we treat church like it's a cruise ship. We're going on a cruise. How's the entertainment going to be today? What's the temperature going to be like when we get here? Oh, what is going on? The people in the parking lot now, I can't go down my usual route. You know, what's up at hand for our parking lot people? They're getting ready for Easter. We want to make them welcome. But we're not a cruise ship. We're a battleship, okay? We're, we're a, a, like the Coast Guard going out into this sea full of sin and trying to rescue people from it. Because there really is a heaven and there really is a hell. And we need to be doing all we can about it. And it seems like the church is compared to a football game. You got 22 people in desperate need of rest and 22,000 in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> Picture of the church, all right? The church is not just, and it's just an instrument. It's not the mission, okay? So now we've been talking about the church that has a what? Hopefully a steeple. And what's inside? All the people. You want to try that? I haven't done that for a long time. We've got the church, the steeple, and all the people. Let's talk about the people. And I'm going to ask you a question. Are you a Christian or are you a disciple? See, those words were interchangeable back in the New Testament, uh, back when this all started. It was the same word. It was interchangeable. You begin to study, and you, well, here, first of all, here's a definition of Christian in the dictionary. A person professing belief in Jesus as the Christ or a religion based on the teaching of Jesus. Great starting point, but like most dictionary terms, it gets a little watered down, and we lose the true meaning of what it be, is to be a Christian. First of all, the word Christian is only found three times in the New Testament, and it's twice in the book of Acts, once in 1 Peter, and in the book of Acts, chapter 11, it says this is where they were first called Christians at Antioch. That meant they talked like Jesus, they acted like Jesus, they had the behavior of Jesus. Matter of fact, the definition, it literally meant belonging to the party of Christ or a follower of Christ. 
Unfortunately, the term Christian has lost a lot of its significance, and now anybody who has high moral values, who maybe does things for the poor, or maybe is in a Christian nation, or goes to a church, can call themselves Christians. But they aren't necessarily a follower of Jesus Christ. So the question is, are you a disciple? If you're not, you're not following Jesus, and if you're not following Jesus, you're not a Christian. You got to go by this word and see what it says. Okay, and what Jesus said about a disciple, let's look at his uh, description of a disciple. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life cannot be my disciple. Pretty strong words. Do you really think he means we need to hate each other? No, because you look at his nature, it's not that way. You look at the other scripture. But what he's making a very strong point that you cannot love anybody more than me your mama, your babies, whatever. I have to be number one if you really want this thing to work, if you really want peace in your life and have the right priorities and things in order. Okay, it goes on to say, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whoever you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, this thing is free, but it costs us everything. It's the gift of salvation is free, but yet we got to turn in our Dirt for his diamonds, our rags for his riches. And it's a great, it's a good exchange, isn't it? Don't seem like it when you're kind of struggling. I'm going to lose my friends or this is going to happen. But I'm telling you, when you go all in, it's really worth it. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. Men will throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's read that in the message version. Kind of simplify it. Simply put. If you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, kiss it goodbye, you cannot be my disciple. Salt is excellent, but if the salt goes flat, it's useless, good for nothing. Are you listening to this? Really listening. Okay? Pretty strong words. Jesus says there can be no rivals, no refusal, and no retreat. He laid it right out there. Now there was a point where Jesus' teachings got even tougher. And it says some of the disciples... He said a lot of the disciples turned and walked away. He looked to the few that were left. He said, are you guys going too? They looked around and said, Master, we've left everything. we got nothing to go back to. We're all in. And that's where it gets exciting. When, you get all, when you're all in. When, when you're struggling the fence and trying to keep a foot in the world and a foot in, I'm telling you, that's when it's not, that's when it's a struggle. It's worth going all in. It really is. Picking up your cross. It says, pick up your cross daily. I mean, that's a tough thing to do. It's a daily thing, a choice we got. It's about decisions we make. It's a decision. Are we going to follow ourselves and our own desires? Or are we going to follow Jesus? Are we going to follow our friends? Or are we going to follow Jesus? Are we going to follow the ways of the world? Or are we going to follow Jesus? And sometimes we don't always do good, do we? But the thing is, if we mess up, we catch yourself going the wrong way. We get convicted. We fall down at your back. The thing is, we need to repent. We need to turn around and go the other way again, back to the cross. Speaking of repent, there was a guy that was a painter. He got a job painting a church. And this guy uh, was into money, so he tried to think of ways to uh, make more money. So he would take his paint and thin it down. And so he'd have more paint. And it would make more money on a job. So he thins down his paint. He paints this church no more than it's done the, the last stroke of paint. The clouds roll up, it pours rain, washes all the paint off the building. And no sooner than that happened, the sun comes out. And he looks up to heaven and he's just thinking, he hears this voice. 
repaint and thin no more. <laughs> kind of let that one hang out there a little bit. Oh, look out. We can't make decisions based on convenience. We have to base it on our convictions. And you got to go to the Word of God to find those convictions. There's a cost. But how many believe it's worth it when this is all over? And not just that, it's worth it right now. There is no way you can find peace without Jesus. You'll never find peace at the end of a joint, at the bottom of a bottle, a prescription from a doctor. It's only through the Prince of Peace. And that's when you get him on the inside. You could experience a little peace during this worship service today because, I mean, just the presence of God is here. But does that peace go with you? When you have Jesus on the inside, it goes with you. There's no counterfeit for peace. The enemy cannot fake that one at all. So now, with all that said, are there any disciples in this room? If so, raise your hand. Oh, I thought there were just 12, and that was they passed away already. Hopefully, you're starting to get this, I think. We talked about the church. Let's talk about the mission. Mark 15, 16, 15, some of Jesus' last words before he leaves. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized is saved. He who does not believe is condemned. Goes on to talk about believers laying hands on the sick and seeing them recover. Verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and then went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word with the accompanying signs. Amen. Why don't we make this thing real simple? It says, go. Let's make it more personal. Go ye, go you, go me into all the world. And tell them the good news. That's basically what it's saying. Okay, now back to the church. Ecclesia. How do we do this? Ephesians 4, 7. But he has given each of us grace, was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Down to verse 11. He gave to some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, the fivefold ministry, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Go down another verse. But speaking the truth in love, they grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is a beautiful picture of the church. Who is the head? Christ. We are the body and we're dependent on each other. I mean, these fingers can do a lot of things, but they're not going to do anything if they're not attached. You know, every part supplies health, strength, blood to the rest of the parts. You know what? You need the church. The church needs you. We're a body, and we need to work together. We can accomplish more when we're together. And yes, the church is a place sometimes you can get offended and hurt because it's full of people. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect pastors. But we need to fight through it and not let the enemy win and work together. Amen? Amen. I'll clap for that one myself. That phrase, the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. Let's look at that in the Good News Version. It was he who gave gifts to people. He appointed some to be apostles, others prophets, others to be evangelists, others to be pastors and teachers. He did this to prepare all God's people for the work of Christian service in order to build up the body of Christ. You know, that's the term for saints or all of God's people. And you're either a saint or an ain't. So which is it? The word saint is one separated from the world and consecrated to God. One holy by profession and by covenant, a believer in Christ. 
See, to me, believer is a better word than Christian in today's, uh, you know, in America today. Are you a believer? Are you somebody that follows him? Do you believe what he did? And do you believe him enough to do what he says to do? So we're God's people. We're here to do the work of the ministry. And that work is to reach as many as possible before it's too late. As, reach as many for Jesus before it's too late. Very simple. You know, we do sidewalk Sunday school four times a week at four different apartment complexes for, for uh, kids that maybe can't make it to church. But we have four reasons we're there. We put it up on the slide, and I ask them, and they say it every week. I say, what's the one, first reason we're here? To love God first. The second reason we're here, to learn His Word. The third reason, to lead other people to Jesus. And the fourth reason, to live right every day. Now, in church, we do pretty good with some of that stuff, but how often do we really focus on to lead other people to Jesus? Isn't that what this is all about? I believe Jesus is waiting to come back because he can win as many as possible before it's too late. He wishes that none should perish in all the kind of repentance. I believe, you know, if we were in the last hour when this was written, we're in the last minutes or seconds right now before he comes back. And how many believe he saves the, saves the best for last? I believe we're here for a reason. I believe we're coming into a time of signs, wonders, and miracles, and we're going to see a big revival. But we've got to be out there prepared and ready to reach the lost. Another good time for an amen. amen. How many do you to kind of hold up amen signs every once in a while? Okay. We can't settle for lukewarm Christianity. John Wesley was convinced the church changes the world not by making converts, but by making disciples. So we we got to move outside of these four walls to get the mission done. Now, talking about the mission, again, it's outside these four walls, and I kind of remind us a story in Ezekiel chapter 3. It talks about a watchman on the wall. They might flip on it in the screen. I'm not going to read it, but basically it's saying, if you're a watchman on the wall and you see some wicked person doing wicked things, you need to tell them because if they die, the blood is on whose hands? Your hands. But if you warn them and they do it and they die, you know, it's off of your hands. It's on them. Okay, we are watchmen on the wall of this city. That means we're up there where we have a perspective to see what's going on because we're seated in heavenly places, first of all. But more than that, we've got this little thing inside us called a discerner. All right, and when you go across people's path, you can have a pretty good idea whether they're a Christian or not. Let's go beyond that, whether they're a believer or not, a follower of Christ. Or maybe they go to church, but you just can realize they're just, they don't have peace right now, or they're struggling with something, or they're sick in their body, you know, where we can actually be salt and light out there in the world. We need to be watchmen and, 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 and do something about that, okay? And I'm going to use, as I close, that word wall, a watchman on the wall. The W stands for wake up. Look at your neighbor. Say, wake up. Everybody wake? Okay. Last lap here. Here we go. What I mean, wake up, Romans 13, 11. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of your sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We need to wake up to the fact that sin has consequences now and eternal consequences. We need to wake up to the fact there is a hell and it's real. Matter of fact, see what the Bible says about it. Just a few of them. Matthew twenty two thirteen. Cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty five forty six. Everlasting punishment. Matthew twenty five forty one. Everlasting fire. Matthew thirteen forty two. Furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Mark nine forty three and forty four. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into life maimed 
rather than having two hands and go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Luke 16, the rich man in Lazarus, verse 24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented by this flame. Then send Lazarus and tell my family, hell is a place you don't want to go. You know, we pray for these revelations of heaven and the golden streets. Maybe we need to pray for a revelation of hell and what it's like. You know, to kind of motivate us. Not to, to tell the lost person about it so much, because it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. We need to tell them the good news. All right, there's enough bad news out there. But for us to open our eyes, maybe we need that kind of revelation. So the W stands for what? Wake up. The A stands for ask them. I mean, ask them, are you 100% sure if you died, you'd go to heaven? Ask them, if you died, would you go to heaven or hell? Ask them, if not that, to come to church. Do you go to church anywhere? Oh, no, or, or maybe. Or I, and when they answer, I said, do you go to church? Yeah, where at? Oh, well, it's the, um, uh, you know, they kind of stutter a little bit. Invite them to church. It's not that hard, is it? And we need to make a place for the lost in our church, okay? First of all, I think we do very well, and I commend you for that. We have people come to our Connect class, and if you haven't come to the next Connect class, you can catch week two this Wednesday at 6.30. You learn your spiritual gifts. You learn about the church. You find a place to use those gifts in our community or our church. But in that class, they're constantly saying, man, when I come, I feel so welcome. And I'm telling you, that's you guys doing that. I mean, it's our ushers and greeters and parking lot and all that, but it's, it's the congregation. And so we need to make place for the lost, make them feel welcome. But literally, when it comes to Easter, we could have 2,000 people here. And we average about 12 or 13 on the weekends. So the place could be filled. And so what I'm asking, if you're a volunteer, that's what we call our dream team. Uh, and our dream team meets here a half hour before service at 8.30 in the morning on Sundays or at 5.30 on Saturday night. You're welcome to come to that. We do have a little corporate prayer time and a little just word of encouragement or if you'd like to be a part of that volunteer team. But on Easter, especially this service or maybe Saturday night, if it fills up and you're a part of this church and feel like you're, you're locked in and, and doing good or serving, if you see it filling up, just kind of... Get up and go to our Connect Cafe. We're going to have the live feed in there, and you can get in there and watch it and make room for our guests. Amen? Can you do that? And then you can be in that room, and because we could do an altar call, possibly in the middle of the service, and we might be bringing them back there to just get their information. You could help, you know, pray with them or get their information. So a couple things there. But not only making place in the church, but we need to make place in our lives for the lost people. Make time for them. 24 hours in a day about 168 hours in a week. Maybe you come to church two hours. Maybe we'll give you four. That's still over 160. You sleep eight hours a day, 56 hours. You're still over 100 hours. Surely in the 100 hours, we could find, and I'm talking to me too, because I tell you, you get on staff at a church, say, oh, now I can really win people to Christ. You get on staff, you end up in an office doing work. And sometimes you're man, I wish I was out there in construction again or doing this or that around the people. But we're all out there somewhere. In our communities, in our schools, in the local supermarkets. And we need to make place for them. You know what? We need to prepare for them because I tell you, somebody else who's preparing for them, and he's the devil. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 5.14. Therefore, 
Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. The other version, hell has enlarged itself, making preparation. It's making preparation for Easter, trying to keep them from not coming, trying to get them distracted. Isaiah 14, 9. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. Man, if you're not saved, I'd get saved today. I would not want hell to be excited about me. Okay? I'd rather have hell be nervous about me, becoming a Christian, and doing damage to his kingdom. Does anybody want to do some damage? Plunder hell and populate heaven this next weekend? Then we have a job to do. The L in the word wall is look for them. Say look for them. John 4.35, Jesus said, Do not say there are still four months and then comes a harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. They're ripe out there. They're just waiting for one word and they'll fall off the trees. Just one invite to church. Man, I'll, I'll go. I, I'm, I'm needing what you have, whatever it may be. And here's what I'm believing for. First of all, I'm asking today that God open our eyes to the harvest, that we'll see them, and that we'll have divine appointments. How many can believe for a divine appointment? And how do you know it's divine? Sometime, well, first of all, I was at a car show last weekend, just kind of something I like to do to get out there and, and kind of in the public and something I enjoy doing. But there was a guy there talking to me, a younger guy, and I have this kind of strange diesel motor in this one car, and he's looking at us, man, I got a rock collar. It's got the, and we started talking. And, and I don't know if I just missed the opportunity, but I drove away thinking, because he found out he was from Utah, just here for a few days on a job. Man, what a perfect time to invite somebody to church. Just here by themselves, maybe away from their friends and not, you know, maybe I'll try this church. And I just felt like, man, I missed that opportunity. And I'm just praying somebody else will cross his path since I missed that opportunity. But there's another time last year, I went to a garage sale, and there was a nice bicycle set in there. It didn't have a price on it. I said, hey, what do you want for this bicycle? And this other guy piped up with a bike helmet on and his bike shorts. Hey, that's not for sale. That's mine. I just rode it here. I'm just talking to the family. And here's what I mean by divine. It's a week later or so, and I go to fill my car up with gas, and the back window's all just covered with dirt, and so I, I decide I'm going to clean the back window and realize it's just muddy running down, and, and I get this wild idea. I'm going to go to a car wash. I'll usually wash it myself, and so going to a car wash was not something I usually do, and then I'm looking at the clouds. I know the forecast is rain, so I about talk myself out of it. It's going to rain anyhow, but anyhow, I just felt like i got to go wash my car. I don't know why. So I go to this car wash, put my quarters in, and I look over, and here's that guy that was at the garage sale on his bike with a flat tire. And so I go over, hey, you need any help? No, I'll get it fixed. And, and so I'm feeling, okay, there's something happening here. So I just keep asking him questions. He keeps talking. And finally the church thing. And then I find out, yeah, he kind of goes. And I said, hey, are you 100% sure if you died you'd go to heaven? Before we were done, he was just hungry as could be and said, yeah, I'll say this prayer with you. I mean, it, there's divine appointments out there. If you don't know how to, and how do you, what if they do say, I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven, what do I do them? Then, well, you just say, you know what, just like the blind man, once I was blind, but now I see. You know, once I didn't have a purpose in my life, or I didn't have, whatever your story is, just real simple, or just this, come to church, they'll tell you about it. Come, and don't just say, come, say, I want to pick you up. And don't say, do you want me to pick you up? Say, should I pick you up for the first or second service? Kind of narrow it down. No yes or no, just which one do you want to come to? little salesman trick there. And the last one, L stands for love them. Say love them. Love Everything them. we do has to be motivated by love. First of all, we've got to love one another because that's going to how they're going to tell we're Christians by our love. God so loved the world he gave his only son. 
2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, not that if one died for all, then all died. He died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Let's hear the message version. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has first and last word in everything we do. Does anybody know a man by the name of Todd Beamer? Have you heard that name before? I shared it with our huddle a couple weeks ago. What about September 11th, 2001? Does anybody remember 9-11? All the lives that were lost during that terrorist attack? Well, Todd Beamer's the guy on United Flight 93 who had been talking to a, a GTE operator and was trying to get some passengers together to a takeover against the terrorists in this suicide plot because they knew if that plane kept going, it was either going to go to the Capitol or the White House and take out hundreds of lives. So they knew they had to, you know, sacrifice their life possibly. They just couldn't sit around and do nothing while these terrorists had their way. And so you hear the phone line from Flight 93 was still open when the GTE operator heard Todd Beamer say this, Are you guys ready? Let's roll. I believe this is a let's roll moment for America right now, for the church in America. I believe this is a let's roll moment for our church coming into Easter. I'm telling you, we need to fill this place with lost people. We need to make place for them. This is a let's roll moment because there's people that will not be here next Easter. They won't make it till Christmas. Look at the paper tomorrow. I mean, the hands of time are wound but once, and no man has the power to know when the hands will stop. At later early hour, to lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's life is more. The time it took me to say that poem, about 5,000 people died and went to heaven or hell, one place or the other. We've got a job to do. It's a let's roll moment. And so the questions as we close, first of all, are you a Christian according to what the world says because you come to church, or are you a disciple? If not, you need to move toward that. And here's the big question I close with. Are you 100% sure if you died today, you'd go to heaven? If you died today, would you go to heaven or hell? Because if you don't know the answer to that, you can leave here knowing that. You really can. See, it was, I was raised Lutheran, and I went to catechism, and I had a lot of great information and understanding up here, but it never got to my heart. My wife was raised Catholic. We were married in a Catholic church. But, and she had a fear of God. But nobody ever told us about having a relationship with God. And in the middle of kind of pursuing my dreams, I heard somebody, you know, just lay it out real flat. First they asked me that question, if he died, would you go to heaven? I thought, oh, man, maybe I do more good than bad. Maybe I can talk my way in. I just wasn't sure. And then he drew a circle on his chest. He said, you know what? That's a God hole. You can try putting whatever you want in that hole. You can try putting pro football. You can try putting, you know, cars and girls and Money, whatever, it'll never satisfy you. The only thing that'll satisfy you is a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He told me to have that relationship, I had to personally ask Christ into my life. And that's the part I never did. And that day, He said, and He challenged us. He said, if you want to say that prayer, if you want to know, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, and when you do, we're going to say a prayer together. And I'm telling you, I could bench press quite a bit, but that day, my hand was pretty heavy. But you know what? I didn't care who was looking. Boom, I raised it up. Next thing I do, I was saying a prayer and ask Christ into my life. And I'm telling you, it changed my life. I'm telling you, God has a purpose and a plan for you. God has some peace He wants you to experience. And if you've never experienced it, you need to ask Him on the inside. And start that journey of a relationship. I'm not talking about religion. 
That's man's best effort to reach God. I'm talking about having a relationship, which was all done at the cross. The price was paid. It's a free gift, and you just have to receive it. As many as receive that gift, to them he gives the power to become children of God. So today, I'm going to count to three with every eye open and everybody looking up. If you're not right with God, if you've never asked Christ in your life, or one more thing, if you've never made a public profession of your faith. Oh, now, wait a minute, Pastor Mike. My religion is a private thing. Well, you know what Jesus did on that cross? was not very private. They stripped him naked, beat him with a cat of nine tails until his organs were literally exposed, and he hung up there and bled to death in front of the whole world. And he says, if you deny me before man, I'll deny you before my father. If you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my father. There's just something powerful happens when you stand up amongst a group of other believers and say, not I want to join the church, but I want to join that movement. How many have done that before? You've asked Christ into your life and you made that step. See, look around, you're in good company. So on the count of three, if you're not sure, want to get right with God, get back on track, hold up your hand and we're going to pray for you. One, two, three. I know there's at least eight people, I believe. Let's hold up your hand until I count them. One, two, three, four, five, six. And I know there's a couple. I really felt that in my spirit. I might not have counted you all. But here's what I want you to do. Do one more thing. I feel so strong about it. And it's not for you that raised your hand so much. Uh, but this is for maybe the couple that haven't yet. Would you mind standing on your feet as we just give you a hand? Those that raised your hand and you really meant it. This is if you really meant it. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you and you and you and you and you. You can go ahead and have a seat. But you know what? I know there's a couple in here that there's something tugging at your heart. Well, how do I know that's God? Well, when you're fishing, how do you know that's a fish? <laughs> and I'm telling you, the devil's not tugging your heart. God just wooing you. And again, I don't want to try to scare the H-E double hockey sticks out of you to go to heaven. I'm telling you, God loves you so much. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. So as they begin to play, we're going to stand to our feet. As we stand to our feet, altar team's coming up here. If you raise your hand or wanted to raise your hand, Come meet me at that cross. And as you do, they're going to give you a round of applause. Amen.